Welcome to the Law of Startups Podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, today we are lucky to have with us Sanjay Puri. He is the co-founder, one of the co-founders of Nine Mile Labs, a great uh, incubator slash accelerator in Seattle focused on B2B companies. One of the first uh, one of the first B2B focused accelerators I think that got going four or five or six years ago. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks, Mike. Uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, great. Well, listen, we, we'd all love to hear more about Nine Mile. I mean, yeah. you must, I know you get a ton of people every year you do. How many cohorts do you do a year? We do about two cohorts a year. They don't necessarily all fit into a calendar year, but approximately two a year. Okay. Yeah. And you get a ton of people from all over the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've had applications from all over the world, in fact, all, all five continents. Um, and uh, yeah, as we have continued to specialize on the enterprise B2B space, what we find is when startups are indeed looking for that support and help and that specialized approach to B2B, they are applying to Nine Mile Labs from across the world. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So that, um, and you were, I, I'm not wrong, right? you were like one of the first that was solely focused on that B2B kind of accelerator, incubator. I mean, did, were you one of the first? In that yeah, category? we were, I'd say we were one of the first handful or so. Okay. Uh, B2B focused accelerators in the world. Um, uh, I believe the, the B2B focus started maybe a year before we started. Okay. But, uh, but we still remain one of the few, uh, few around. Yeah. You've had, um, shoot, I've known a lot of companies have come through. You've had some great companies yeah. come through. Yeah. A lot of really smart people. And so you're doing a great thing for, you're doing a great thing for the world. I yeah. Totally enjoying it. And, uh, you know, we, uh, when we started, uh, the thesis was that, uh, and we started back in 20. 2012. Mid-2012 is when the three of us, Sandy, Kevin, and I, um, went down this path and we explored a number of different business models um, and a number of different approaches to helping startups. But 2013 is when we really launched. And the thesis at the time was that there is a lot of investment going into consumer-focused companies and consumer-focused startups. And as with anything else in the economy, things go in waves. And we felt like there was so much difference and such a gap between consumer-focused technologies and startups and what was being, being built on the enterprise and B2B side that the, the tables had to kind of turn, things had to switch to more uh, B2B and enterprise-focused investment. And that has borne out. We, we have uh, felt like there is, uh, ever since then, that time, there has been a renewed focus and a pretty large focus on enterprise and B2B companies. Now, things will change. Right. Uh, things go back and forth, as we all know in the economies. What goes up must come down. But at the same time, uh, this focus has allowed us to be uh, fairly differentiated in the fairly crowded world of uh, accelerators. Right. Yeah. It seems like with everything else you do, whether you're a law firm, an accounting firm, or whatever you do, you got to pick your spot. You got to pick your spot, and you got to choose what you're going to be, and then you just got to get really, really good at that thing. That's exactly right. And what ends up happening is that. Once you have picked that uh, niche or that spot or that specialization, then you uh, build everything um, around it right. based on that, on that specialization. So, for example, we, have, um, we focus all of our mentors right. on B2B technologies. <laughs> and if you can imagine, the mentors and the kind of coaching you would need for an enterprise-based startup would be right. pretty significantly different from consumer-based startups. Right. We focus a lot of, um, of the way we um, design a curriculum. For instance, uh, we have built a methodology called Nine Mile Innovation Framework, and we've written a blog around that too. Right, right. Um, we focus that methodology on B2B and enterprise-based startups, and we have 
uh, refined that over the last three years, uh, learned a lot, made our mistakes, um, and we believe we have something that really allows startups to have a pretty structured way in which they can build their startups. And the thinking around that methodology, by the way, is that as a startup, you can do a million things. Right. What we typically like to say is startups don't starve, they drown. Right. Because there's so many things that they could be doing. Right. Out of those millions of things that they could be doing, we help them focus on the stage-appropriate activities that they should be doing depending on where they are in the evolution of the startup. And that's gotcha. what, the, what, um, uh, what the concept behind that is. Right. You just had cohort, was it, was it cohort six demo day last week? Was cohort five. Cohort five last March week. March okay. 3rd, yeah. So okay. a week, the week before last. Uh, phenomenally yes. successful. We had 11 companies this time, uh, seven local companies from the Seattle area, four from outside of Seattle. Yeah. Um, uh, a, a couple of those uh, companies uh, out of the four from outside of Seattle were from out of the country. So, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Give so us how a taste of no. connect up. Sorry, Mike. I, I was gonna. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna. I was gonna say when you're done, give us a flavor for the type of companies that that have come through some of the some of the projects that that have happened. Um, just to give a taste of kind of what those business to business companies are looking like. Yeah. So. Um, uh, let's take an example from the last cohort. Um, in the last cohort itself, um, we had a, a very interesting robotics company. Actually, I would not even call it a robotics company. They use robots to solve a very interesting problem, which is how do you separate trash? How do you separate trash? Right. That's a big issue, right? It's a big issue. <laughs> and uh, governments, uh, 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 local and state governments, have pretty stringent requirements around um, uh, targets that they've set up for uh, these waste-to-energy plants. The interesting thing about that is we are still applying humans to it. Right. And humans have a fixed amount of stamina. Sure. They cannot necessarily stay in a stinky place for too long. Right. And uh, they only have that much strength to continue to work for, for the longest time. Yeah. Uh, robots, on the other hand, even though they have the strength, the stamina, the speed, right. are dumb. Right. They cannot see just like humans do. Right. And so this company, uh, the name is Jodan, J-O-D-O-N-E. Was that a local company or was that one from the other area? Uh, they were based out of Boston. Okay. Um, phenomenal founder. Anyway, so they basically said, let's combine the speed, strength, and stamina of robots right. with the hand-eye coordination of human beings. Right. And let's provide a tablet to human beings nice. so they can manipulate the trash Right. Uh, in order to be able to separate it very quickly, humans don't get tired. They don't have you don't right. have to worry about all of those other issues associated with huh. trash separation. So that was an interesting company. We had uh, two uh, IoT based companies. Okay. Now again, I wouldn't call them IoT companies, but they are using Internet of Things technology. And that was in the last cohort. That's in the last okay. cohort. Uh, one of them I'll talk about. It's called Storm Sensor. Okay. And the idea there is. How do you monitor storm water right. across the various uh, places that you actually indeed need to, to track it? Right. Uh, there are construction sites. There are storm water uh, sites uh, that are required by law to, to maintain that. The way typically it's done is you apply humans to it. Right. You think it's raining in a certain area. You send a person out there. It may or may not be raining, right. and they, they actually uh, measure all of the uh, metrics that they actually need to measure and they come back. <laughs> now, if it doesn't happen to be raining out there, yeah. you have to send this person again. Right. Uh, and, and as you can imagine, the, the scenario is pretty simple. 
you create a hardware device right. and you equip that hardware device to be able to measure all of the things that you need to measure, whether it is the flow of water, the turbidity, and a lot of those other uh, specialized metrics that I have no clue about. Um, right. And now you are able to connect directly with your uh, you know, over-the-air network, uh, bring that data back, right. dem- uh, display that uh, data on a dashboard, and there you go. You have j- cut the costs of uh, being able to uh, maintain this ongoing monitoring pretty significantly. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, there were other companies. One of our companies is uh, was in, uh, in a very interesting space of how do you provide a software platform for uh, product vendors to work with their resellers. Huh. That is a problem that has plagued this industry, especially technology industry, for a long time because what ends up happening is resellers... Uh, build their own leads. They have their own ways of acquiring customers. However, resellers can be a lot more effective if they share that lead data with the product vendor, right. for instance, a Microsoft or a Dell, and this this Microsoft or Dell would equip them to be able to, to uh, make a better sale, to provide them price breaks, what have you. Right. Um, the problem is, that resellers don't trust the product. Right, vendors. I was just going to ask. Yeah. It's an element of distrust there, right? Yeah, Perhaps. and they're worried about the fact that as soon as they hand off that lead to the product vendor, either the direct sales arm of the product vendor is going right. to uh, uh, acquire it, or else it's going to be handed off to another reseller. Right. So what this uh, company called Viato has done is uh, created a deal escrow platform, huh. which allows for these resellers to be able to share this data with the product vendor right. and then to be able to get a partner of record designation for that's very interesting we do um, so I do reseller agreements with companies that I've worked with um, and so we typically that's that's a huge issue for those agreements is how do you often we represent the companies that are that are that are engaging with a reseller and they want to make sure that the reseller doesn't just spam them with a bunch of opportunities not, not necessarily a reseller but more like a referral type yep. of relationship so like referral agreements where the the referral partner gets to kind of make introductions and refer companies and then they get a commission or a, or a or a revenue share when when a sales made to somebody that they help make the sale with but um so we usually handle that through some kind of like form that that we attach to the to the agreement that says whenever you have a, a, a referral you want to make you fill out the form or you send an email with all the relevant information and then the the, the company who's going to, going to accept or reject that gets the form and, and it doesn't actually earn a, a rev share unless the, the company accepts it. Hmm. Um, but, but it's very low tech and it's kind of always, it's always a source of frustration to these companies. They're just like, really, I'm going to, this is how it works. I have to, I have to fill out a form and, and email it to somebody. It, it seems like th- <laughs> it's, these guys are onto a, yeah, they're definitely solving kind of a weird bureaucratic thing. Um, yeah. Yes. It's there's interesting. Lot, there's a lot of old, weird bureaucratic tools in place in the enterprise space that linger because no one spent any time trying to make them better, or there's no incentive to make them better, or just just people haven't focused on them yet. And that's one of the areas that we are finding a lot. And you know, the industry term for that is vertical SaaS. Okay. The idea being that there are a lot of industries and um, and areas out there that have been untouched by technology. Right. Uh, because a lot of the product vendors in general have been focused on broad, horizontal, large technologies like a CRM that applies to every type of industry or right. an ERP that applies to every single industry. Right. However, there are large, you know, billions dollars worth of markets that have not yet been addressed. 
and we are finding these uh, these you know so-called niches, even though these are large billion-dollar niches, right. that are yet unaddressed. You know, a simple example is one of our companies in the last cohort called uh, this was in cohort four, by the way, Faster Bids. Um, if you've ever uh, remodeled a house, one yeah. of the things you end up doing while remodeling a house is you buy windows and doors. Right. The process of getting questions um, uh, around the windows and doors is painful. You actually go through paper books. The salesperson is actually going to show you paper books. He makes note of all of the your choices and options. And then he takes that data back. He'll spend another two hours on building that code. This company essentially did a simple thing. They took all of this manufacturer's data yeah. and digitized it and created a simple tablet-based application for these guys to be able to create a quote right when they are with the customer. Right. Cutting down at least two to three hours per sale and you have multiple uh, customer interactions per day. Wow. It, sounds, it sounds a bit like what Gary Rubens was telling us he did, he did with lighting. It is, uh, do you remember that, Joe? So Gary's old company was uh, – I, I could be getting this wrong, but it was all about sort of bringing uh, – lighting and and these uh like uh items that people had to buy through paper catalogs and just bringing it all to the internet yeah um yeah, yeah so it just has to happen with every in, every every niche industry has to eventually be brought to the internet and there's yeah. big opportunities there it obviously worked out great for gary that was a you know a great idea yeah. Yeah, and you know that's that's the fun part about doing what we do, which is you know the only box we put around the companies that apply to us yeah. is hey, it, this needs to be enterprise B two B, which implies for us that um, your primary source of revenue needs to be another business. Right. And then when we see all of these applications and all of these entrepreneurs come in with their unique, innovative ideas, it just blows our minds. Right. And that's the fun part about working with them to kind of figure out you know what are the ways in which you're going to make this this entire thing work right is this, so are you I have a question about about nine mile and sort of yep. so one of the things that that occurs to me as a, like an entrepreneur and a developer is uh you know going after an enterprise type of customer for for a lot of small entrepreneurs and developers they, they've made consumer products but they're it's a bit intimidating to think about the sales process so you you could make a product um, selling to consumers is relatively straightforward. You, you go straight to the internet or you go straight to the consumer and you try to make the sale. And, and that's the kind of thing you can do with sort of general social media marketing and regular, you know, advertising on the internet. But with, it seems to me that with enterprise software, it's a much more sophisticated thing. And you almost, I've always been intimidated by it because of the fact that it feels like you need to have a, a, a real sales team with a, a you know, professional salespeople that can go and call on customers and, and handle these really long uh, sales cycles. Do, do, does Nine Mile help companies along with that in terms of helping them understand how to, how to sell a product into enterprise? Absolutely, Mike. And, and you've actually nailed a pretty significant difference between the way you market and sell uh, consumer businesses versus enterprise-based businesses. In consumer, marketing equals sales for the most part. Okay? In uh, enterprise-based or B2B sales, your marketing is a very different function from the way sales happens. But now, and hence the reason for wanting to specialize in one area, because you cannot paint all of them with a single brush, you cannot apply the same mentors, you cannot apply the same methodologies, and you cannot coach them the same way. Right. Having said that, though, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is a pretty intimidating prospect of having to deal with the longer sales cycles of uh, and of dealing with sales cycles that are more science than art in, in an enterprise business. Right. Now, what ends up happening is 
the entrepreneurs who apply to Nine Mile Labs for their B2B enterprise specific businesses are typically experienced professionals. They have worked in that particular industry for some time and have had and have had the types of insights that lead them to believe that there is a particular pain point or problem to be solved, right. you see. And so they come from a position uh, of, of understanding the business. They do have some networks in place to where uh, it's not like going into a brand new environment if they ever had to talk to customers or think about customer acquisition and customer development and so on. Right. In addition... One of the things that we do at Nine Mile Labs is actively make introductions to customers, uh, prospective customers, as well as prospective partners. And what ends up happening with, with the way they interact with, uh, with these customers and partners is that they continue to expand that network. Right. So uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's non-trivial and it takes a while. You cannot just go to Pike Place Market or the Westlake Mall to go acquire customers. Right. It is a is a very deliberate. It's a very thoughtful process. Although, if you gotta, if you gotta, I mean, I think Mike, I think you know, I think part of this is just like if your if your forte is building a technical tool, you're not you're not a you're not you know, growing up as a salesperson. I mean, I think part of it is just you know, you're you're, you're comfortable in the in the building of a of a tool or you know, coding software or something. So you're a little just kind of intimidated by something you haven't done. Yeah. Part of it. Do you think that's part of it, Mike? Yeah, I think it's part of it. It's it's um to me, you know, there's always that, and I'm sure everybody has their own gaps in their in their experience, and so maybe that's just one of mine. Where when I when I see it, when I'm evaluating the choice between doing an enterprise type project or a, or a consumer project, uh, you know, you weigh the pros and the cons. The enterprise projects are can be can be extremely lucrative because the the um, large companies spend a lot more money on software than in, an individual would. I mean, sometimes you know, massive magnitude uh, higher, um, but but the the on the negative side when you're trying to weigh the two um to me it's always the, the the need for maybe dedicated sales personnel has always been um kind of weight weighed against those ideas in, in a sense not so much that I didn't feel like I could make the sales but but more that I felt like in order to really succeed and to grow that kind of business you really need a sales organization within your company and that that wasn't my strong suit um yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, but what do you, what's your experience? I mean, do people? I imagine that early in a in a company's career, they don't need a ton of salespeople, but and maybe as the product grows, they can build out a sales uh, organization within their company. Um, what what how do how do people work when they're at the incubator stage? I mean, is it is it the founders are making the phone calls themselves and just trying to get those initial customers signed up, and and then how soon do they move to getting like hiring a, a you know full time salesperson or a sales representative that's that's out there, you know, making phone calls all day. So uh, the way we coach our companies is um, if they cannot sell themselves, they right. cannot expect to hire a salesperson who can sell the product. Because early on in a, in, a, in a startup's life, you're not just selling. You're also trying to understand the customer's pain point at the same time right. that you're trying to sell the product. In fact, you're doing a lot more of that um, understanding the customer's uh, a problem, you're trying to understand what type of solution would actually solve the problem and you're doing product development on the side. Right. And if you believe that you do not have the ability to go have that conversation with a customer, uh, you probably don't belong in that role of CEO. Hmm. Um, uh, so, so every CEO uh, has to go out and be selling themselves. Uh, and only once they have gotten to the point where they can actually truly understand and are intimate with a customer's pain point 
and really understand what is the value exchange that they offer with their product to their customers. Right. Can they th even remotely start thinking about hiring a salesperson? The rule of thumb that we apply for hiring additional salespeople um, on the team is you don't hire a salesperson before you uh, before that sales uh, you don't hire a second salesperson until the first salesperson is already starting to pay for themselves. I see. And, and you don't hire a first salesperson until until you have nailed the product market fit. Gotcha. You see. Gotcha. So the way and again this goes back to the nine mile innovation framework that I was talking about. Right. Um, so that framework is really about uh, you know you iteratively go through this process of understanding the pain point understanding your competitive differentiation, really figuring out the value proposition, and then building an early version of a product. And you go through it iteratively many, many times over. You keep going back to the same set of customers. Right. And until you have really what we call nailed it, mm -hmm. you don't go to the scaling piece of it. The nailing part is all the founding team. Right. And the founding team in our, uh, in our um, methodology is a hacker, a hustler, a visionary. Those are the three roles that you hire on a team. Okay. Uh, or you, uh, I'm sorry. Those are the three founders on a team. Okay. So let's talk about that. That's an interesting concept. So the hacker yep. is the technical side, I assume. He's the one that's actually hacking away at the product. That's exactly right. And then what's the hustler? A hustler is out looking for deals, trying to find connections and relationships, raise money. Um, what, what, what does that that's role right. look like? So the hustler is exactly that. The person who's very comfortable going out, talking to customers, being able to sell, being able to understand their pain points and problems, is able to build relationships. That's the hustler. The visionary is the person, and this may, again, not be a, a separate person. These are all roles. Uh, typically, what we find is the uh, hustler and visionary is rolled into one, or the hacker and visionary is rolled, rolled into one, and that's perfectly fine. But the idea is this is the person who had the original vision about, about the concept itself, who lays awake at night thinking about what's next for the business. This is also the person who we believe feels empowered to make the pivot when necessary because they've talked to enough people, uh, enough prospective customers to find that the original idea that they started with right. is not really viable. Huh. Nobody cares about that idea, even though initially they thought that that was going to be the, the way they were going to move forward. But this uh, visionary is the one who feels like, okay, I've talked to enough customers. I know this what we started up with is, is not going to be sustainable. Let's pivot to what customers are really telling us based on everybody that we continue to talk to. Um, and so these three roles are critical in order to be able to, to really make this team jive together to function and gel. Right. Hmm. So how did you and Sandy and Kevin come together? Yeah, great Who, question. Which one is the hacker and the hustler and the visionary? In your well, we are not a technology startup. <laughs> So, uh, but we are a startup, so, yeah, so I yeah. won't take that away from you. Yeah. Uh, so, so let me describe, um, yeah. you know, uh, how we came together. So back when I was at Microsoft, and I left Microsoft in 2006, okay. I was on the office team. And Sandy was running a services firm. Okay. Uh, Sandy did some work for us at okay. Microsoft and inside the office team. And uh, he did some work for us, did fabulous work. We became great personal friends okay. and maintained connection ever since. And... In mid-2012, when I decided that, okay, this is time to move out and, and uh, pursue something on my own, Sandy was one of the first people I spoke to. Okay. And uh, that's when we started um, 
uh, throwing around a few ideas around how do we help startups? Because all of us had amassed this experience. I had run engineering teams. I had done marketing. I had done product management. Right. Sandy has been an entrepreneur all his life. Uh, right. And he is an ex-CTO. He has sold stuff. Um, and we started to think about how we bring that uh, all of that experience to support startups because startups need all of those skills. Right. However, you cannot really provide those capabilities to startups in the form of a services firm because services firms rely on cash. Right. Cash is currency that startups don't have. Right. What startups have is equity. So how do you kind of there is a fundamental disconnect between a services model, you know, a typical consulting right, model, and right. what startups have and can can do. So anyway, we we bounced around a few ideas. In the meantime, we also connected Kevin, who was uh, completing his MBA with Sandy's business partner at his services firm. Okay, okay. okay. So all of these things kind of came together uh, uh, in in mid twenty twelve when we started, and we actually bounced around a few ideas. We helped like four or five different startups. Okay. With, uh, with with uh, with some of what they were trying to do, and by September October of 2012, it became clear that, that w- what we were trying to do, which is helping multiple startups, right. and we wanted to do it at scale. Right. Uh, the accelerator model was really the optimal model to be able to do that. And then we looked around us. Look, we looked at the Seattle area, and we felt like, wow, so much technology happened. Right. It's all of these uh, these technology companies churning out. Phenomenal talent, um, and there's tons of money. Um, There's tons of people who've acquired wealth, whether it's with Nordstrom or Microsoft or Amazon and so on. The raw materials exist. However, we were surprised about the throughput of startups in this region. And we said, okay, here's a place uh, where only fools would go. (laughs) Why not we do this? And uh, that's when we decided to found Nine Mile Labs. Okay. And um, and the focus on B2B was pretty obvious. Our own experiences were based on enterprise B2B. Right. Uh, it, it was a natural fit for us. And then based on our thesis around, hey, people are not focused on B2B right now. Right. But that is going to happen. And there is a significant gap between what consumer technolo- where consumer technologies are and where business technologies are. Right. It just made sense to go down that road. Yeah, that's, that's fun. That's a good story. Uh, yeah, I think you guys really... Um, I mean, looking back, it seems like you really made a wise and smart move, um, and I mean, you must be really pleased with kind of how, how far you've come and what you have what you have going and the momentum and everything else. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, it's this has exceeded our wildest expectations. Very clear. But at the same time, one of the things that we we are pretty hard on ourselves about right. is continuing to refine and iterate. Right. What we believe is, uh, and and you guys have all been in business for a while. Um, it, uh, accelerators themselves are a fairly recent phenomenon. Right. Started in 2005 with Y Combinator. Right. Okay. It's a fairly new business model, and and what I know right now is the accelerator models that we are business models that we are seeing right now are not what we're going to see five years from now. Okay. I don't know what is going to be prevalent five years from now, but I know it's not going to be what we have currently, mm-hmm. and so we want to be there in five years time. So we are pretty hardcore with each other being self-critical about continuing to understand what is different, how we need to change in order to respond to startups and needs. And so 
as part of that process, we have continued to evolve and iterate. Um, you know, few things that we've done, you know, we, I've talked about the nine mile innovation framework, which allows us to use that framework for selection. Right. It allows us to use that framework for defining our curriculum. It allows us to make follow on investments in the companies uh, as they make progress. Uh, that's one of the pretty significant uh, differences uh, from the other. Uh, so you have a follow on fund? Uh, it's the same fund. Okay. And, uh, and that's the other uh, way in which we have um, evolved the, the accelerator business model to not only uh, 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 focus on what is going to be successful later on, but also focus on the fundamental deficiencies of our Seattle uh, investment ecosystem. We have a pretty risk averse investment ecosystem. Right, right. And for us, what we find is that there are companies that doing fairly well we believe that they are focused on the right things right they are making progress but not progress enough to be able to prove to the set of invest uh, to the investment community here that they deserve the funding and for us the challenge was how do we uh, keep companies from the valley of death is what we call it yeah. they're making adequate progress yeah but not good enough to get the kind of funding that you need uh, that that can garner the funding in this area so we've uh, embarked on what we call a tranche-based investment model. Okay. And this investment model is basically about um, investing in three different tranches. Okay. Every company gets tranche one when they enter the program. Okay. When they enter the program, we work together with them to define the metrics that they need to achieve. And these are all customer acquisition, customer traction metrics. Right. The metrics that they need to achieve to get the second tranche of investment. How many, how many, me, how many metrics are there typically? How many, like six, three, 12? Uh, so we work pretty focused, in a pretty focused manner with the companies to define the one metric that one. matters. Okay, one. Okay. It's a tough one. <laughs> it's a tough I've one. Heard that, I've heard there should be three, but I mean, I don't know, right? What's the right answer? Does anyone really know exactly what the right answer is? I don't think so, but I think uh, focusing on the one metric at least helps you kind of yeah, narrow focus. down the helps number of focus, things. Right, because right? I've seen a lot of companies who like, they have like 12 or something, you know, they have like some astronomical number that you can't possibly... That's right. You can't have too many, otherwise like you're scatterbrained or something. Yeah, right? and, and then they cannot prioritize right. what to really focus on. So first defining the one metric that matters, right. and then how are you going to affect that mat metric. Now, uh, uh, at a higher level though, the thing that we are trying for the companies to achieve um, uh, for the tranche two investment is what we call problem solution fit. Okay. Meaning that you've identified a problem, you've validated that problem, and you have an MVP or a prototype that actually solves the customer's problem. Okay. And you have a rapidly accelerating customer acquisition metric that you can point to. Okay, okay, okay. So that's what we base the tranche two metrics on. Okay. Tranche three, uh, and again, we haven't made any tranche two or tranche three because we just changed this model for cohort right. five. Right. And we're in the process of doing that. Tranche three metrics are defined as soon as we award the tranche two investment. Okay. You see? Okay. And the Uber thinking around tranche three is it needs to reflect product market fit. Okay. Meaning that you have you are beginning to achieve some type of scale around customer acquisition. And you guys have published all this stuff. This it's all cool. published. It's on our website. It's in okay. FAQs and so on. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So that's uh, one other way in which we've evolved to reflect the, the investment climate in Seattle. Sure. Because there are companies. There are companies that are doing well. Why don't we put our weight behind 
uh, these companies so not only can they get the investment from us but there is also some level of validation for the investment community that hey somebody actually spent some time with these guys right and believe that these companies are doing well right doing well enough to be able to garner the next level of investment sure so that's the that's the second area and and the third area and we we feel pretty passionately about it and this is something that has been more or less in place since the first cohort which is around mentorship so one of the core values that accelerators provide to startups is the mentorship right um, now what we've seen though happening with a lot of the accelerators is uh, what we call the seagull model of mentoring Okay. The Siegel model of mentoring fly is fly over and crap on something leave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it, Joe. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, you know, you you invite a mentor for two hours. Yeah. The mentor is going to meet like three or four companies, yeah. and they're going to just drop their pearls of wisdom. It's, it's, yeah. And Pretty easy to drop pearls of wisdom on somebody and leave. Exactly, and leave. And what we felt was mentorship can truly be impactful and effective only when there is a sustained level of engagement between the mentors and the companies. Right. And so what we did was we said, we are going to have three dedicated mentors for every company in the program. Okay. And we are going to have a process of thoughtfully curating those mentorship relationships. And we are going to hold mentors to a requirement of meeting with the companies for at least one hour a week during okay. the program. Do you, do you, how do these folks, do they get, how do they get compensated or do they get compensated or what's the... Is there anything like that in the, is it just purely kind of a volunteer model? Or? Well, it starts off with volunteer because yeah. a lot of the mentors do want to support and help startups. Yeah, yeah, people volunteer. They However, uh, we do have a commitment f uh, for the mentors where we, the GPs, will share 10% of our profits okay. from any future exits with the mentors who have been dedicated to the companies. Okay, okay, interesting, okay. And so we are putting skin in the game. Yeah. And what we are also saying to mentors is, uh, let's align incentives. Right. And that's core and critical. Yeah. Which is how do you make sure that these mentors are, of course, continuing to help the company right. right. They're having the conversations, they're asking questions, they're, they're letting the companies go out and, and try out things. Companies come back and say this worked or this did not work and then get to the next level of engagement and coaching. Um, gotcha. And that cannot happen with the Siegel model of mentoring. No. And that's that's the one area that we believe uh, it's been very effective. The other uh, consequence that happens out of that uh, sustained mentoring is mentors sometimes come on board as senior execs. Sure. Mentors invest in the companies. Right. Mentors come on on boards of advisors, of, on boards of directors. Right. So there's a number of different other relationships that we enable, which basically allows for this ecosystem to come to help these startups. Sure. It takes a village to help startups, right, 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 and right. we believe that we we want to bring to bear the power of this entire village to support the companies. Well, that's super exciting. I I need to go and, and back and read. I read a lot of what you've written, but I need to go back and study it in greater detail because yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of really great stuff here, and it's all on the blog, right? It's all on the NineMileLabs.com blog. Right? That's right. That's right. It's on the blogs, and a, a lot of the investment stuff is on our FAQ section FAQs, on the website too. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and is that under like is that under the about us page or where where did I find the FAQs? I'll look for it. I'll find it. But it's on the nine. The website is ninemilelabs.com. That's right. Okay, that's right. That's great. This has been a really interesting conversation. I think you're working on such uh, great stuff. We'll have to have you back sometime, maybe after the next round of uh, of startups comes through and you talk about the the latest and greatest. Um, but thanks for coming on. It was really uh, really enlightening. Enlightening, and uh, yeah, thanks for. Thanks for being here. And everybody else, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.